Hello, friends. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. Welcome. I'm Robert Polly. And uh, today on the show, uh, I'm going to be joined by the writer Karen Joy Fowler, most widely known for her best-selling novel, The Jane Austen Book Club. She's also an award-winning writer of sci-fi and fantasy fiction. And uh, to hear just the outline of her most recent novel, you might well think it is fantasy, too. It is called We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, and it's about a woman who was raised with a chimpanzee for a sister as part of a psychological study of animal-human differences. But actually, that is not so fantastical a premise. There were, in fact, a bunch of experiments over the decades in which human families attempted to bring up baby chimps as though they were people. And this goes all the way back to the 1930s when the psychologist Winthrop Kellogg tried to rear a chimp alongside his infant son, Donald. That kind of chimp cross-fostering study seems to have been particularly in vogue in the 1970s. Go figure. A lot of these experiments ended quite badly, especially for the chimps, but also for some of the people. And it is not at all clear what they proved scientifically. But they sure did raise a lot of interesting questions about who we humans think we are and what we think we're doing with animals. Those are questions at the heart of Karen Joy Fowler's novel, and they are issues close to the heart of this show. Thus the interview that you're about to hear. Karen, thanks for coming in and joining me on the show. Thank you for asking me. Were you an animal lover as a kid? Aren't most children? Have you ever met a child who wasn't? You know, I always think that I was way on the extreme of animal loving, but um, I expect I was right in the middle. What did you have as pets? We had a house full of pets over the years. Um, We had uh, cats and dogs, of course. We had parakeets. Um, We had hamsters, snakes, um, and and no end of rats, since my dad worked as a psychologist running rats through mazes. That, with some frequency, there would be a washout at the lab in some <laughs> some way, and that rat would end up in our home. This was uh, in Bloomington, Indiana. In Bloomington, Indiana, yes. Your dad was at Indiana University. That's right. I recently learned that B.F. Skinner had been at Indiana for a while. Yes. I I am not actually positive... When he was there. So it's not clear to me if he and my dad overlapped or not, but there was no shortage of stories about him. Actually, having said that, no, I think I think they must have overlapped because my mother taught nursery school and, and had B.F. Skinner's kids for a while. Oh, my God. So, um, His kids. Yeah. So they weren't in little boxes hidden away. Not by the time they were at nursery school. <laughs> I know, that's a myth. But was your dad a behaviorist like B.F. Skinner? My dad was a behaviorist, yes. So did he truly believe, as behaviorists supposedly did, that it really wasn't relevant to talk about mental states, inner life, all the traditional material of psychology, but just about conditioning and reflexes and outward behavior? You know, one of the things that prompted the book, I think, lo, those many years ago, um, is that he and I had a very long-running argument over whether animals could think or not. And he he came down very strongly on the side of, uh, uh, at least on the side of thinking, well, we can't prove that they can, so let's be very careful about what they say. And 
I think I'm anticipating what your actual question was. <laughs> um, he certainly included humans. You know, I was very, it was very made very clear to me when I was growing up that I was also an animal. He was not impressed with human thinking. I don't think that he would go so far as to say it was completely uh, phantasmagorical, but um, he certainly felt, um, as I tragically have also come to feel, that a great deal of what appears to be thinking is uh, rationalizing much more primal, primate kinds of concerns. So are you a behaviorist then? I wouldn't say that I am not a behaviorist. <laughs> you wouldn't say that you're not a behaviorist. I, I've gotten tangled up in my negatives. Um, I wouldn't say that I was a behaviorist. Oh, okay. okay. You know, I think I have gone the other way, that I think that the... Um, that the mental processes of animals are very complex and that we have underestimated them at every possible turn. Um, it's harder for me to acknowledge that human mental processes may also be complicated because every time I think that, Washington, D.C. proves me wrong. <laughs> Congress proves me wrong. Well, I could turn this into a very personal discussion um, which I, I will do only for a moment. I am the son of a psychologist. He was an anti-behaviorist. And I think... All was right, he a, a clinical counselor? He was, he was a clinical psychologist, also a university psychologist, but not an experimental psychologist, which that field was dominated by behaviorism in those days. And we did have hooded rats, by the way, as pets, uh, brought home from the labs of his colleagues. But... Um, I think the itinerary of my life was shaped in part because of his rejection of behaviorism, because as behaviorists took over university departments, he moved on, because uh, he did believe in the inner life. And uh, So he moved on to where? Um, eventually... He, just, he left the university. He moved from campus to campus until he found a, a nice home. A comfortable home. Yeah, yeah. We, um, my father was... I remember him telling me that... Um, he thought Freud had invented a very effective tool for um, literary criticism, but that it had very little relevance to the actual non-fictional world. Which you hear a lot these days, that Freud was a bad scientist, that he wasn't reliable at all. You know, he didn't use scientific method at all, and he invented some of his stories besides. And that ideas like, you know, the Oedipus complex and all that stuff, storytelling, at its finest. I know that uh, I, I have never been able to find a woman who r recollects having <laughs> any sort of penis envy at any point and who did not find that that entire concept surprising. I think there were enough boys who um, got kicked in the groin who had <laughs> vagina envy, certainly. <laughs> um, but it sounds like your father had a lot in common then with the father in your novel. My father all, does. You yeah. know, there is a, a lot of overlap. And I, and because of that, I have just encountered in my Christmas cards from relatives a problem that um, you would think 30 years into my career I would be more prepared for, where um, because people in the family see that I have drawn on so much of my father, they imagine it's all Right. True about my and the, father. And, and that you're so Rosemary gotten, somehow? Well, no, I think they know that I'm, I think they know that we did not raise a chimp. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, the, in this case, it came, um, 
in the form of many people asking me if my dad had really run over a cat with a car. And I thought, you knew my father. Of course he didn't. And nor did Rosemary's father. Nor did the father in the story. I know. And uh, maybe we can talk about the incident uh, later. But I want to know about your interest. Your father was an experimental psychologist, but he worked with rats. Not worked chimps. with rats, not chimps, yes. At what point did you become interested in this whole phenomenon of what you call chimped-up families, uh, human families who, as part of some psychological experiment, adopted a chimp? I, um, first of all, to not exactly answer your question, which I will get to the answer, but um, in my own meandering time, um, when I would go visit my dad in the lab, um, you know, there was the rat room where I was very comfortable. And um, I always say there can be few people on the face of the planet who have the nostalgic pull toward the smell <laughs> of rat cages that I do. That uh, damp sawdust smell. Yes. But um, <laughs> but over in part of the lab where I was not allowed to go, there were the monkey cages. And um, I believe they were rhesus monkeys, although I'm not positive about that. But they were uh, one to a cage, and they were um, very dangerous and very angry. And um, it seemed to me completely insane. And so I was not allowed anywhere near them. They would reach out and try to grab you and try to bite you. And um, and so, you know, my sort of first answer to your question is that um, is that I have been haunted by those monkeys my whole life. Mm. It was not so hard to pretend that the rats were living contented lives, although I now know that was probably unlikely as well. But um, but there was no denying that the that the monkeys had been tormented in some horrible ways. So there was that, um, and I was always very very grateful that my father was not one of the people working with the monkeys. Um, and then um, you have to. Fast forward many, many years, really, until the um, millennial new year. And um, my daughter and I went back to Indiana University. She had never been there. My father died before she was born, so he's a very fictional figure to her. And we were walking around the campus, and I was showing her where I grew up and and where the rat lab was. And I started talking to her about uh, Winthrop Kellogg, who left IU about the time that my family arrived. And he is the scientist who, the psychologist who did the very famous experiment where he tried to raise his infant son simultaneously to raising uh, uh, an infant chimpanzee in order to try to um, make their upbringing very comparable, very similar, and see what the different results were. But raising them side by side. Raising them side by side in the mm. same home, yes. Mm. So basically giving the, the little chimp a human upbringing um, at the same time as you were giving your son a human upbringing in order to see what different kinds of capabilities and results you would get. And I this is just a story I had heard many times, I assume, because Winthrop Kello was at IU and my dad was in that department. And anyway, it was just part of my past, but as a story I had not really thought a whole lot about. When I was told the story, the emphasis was always on the findings, which were that the chimps were much more advanced until about 16 months, and then the 
children began to make up ground. And so I was telling this to my daughter, and she just kind of waved past all of the findings and said, wow, what would it be like to be a, that child, the, the child whose father thought it was appropriate to raise you that way? You should write that book. That human child. That human child, about that human child. So that's really the point at which I began to, I mean, I don't have good ideas, but I know one when I hear one. And <laughs> that's the point at which I began to do a lot of reading about these chimped up families and and how many were there? Do we know? More than you might suspect, while still being a fairly small number. Most of them had some sort of association, it now appears to me, with um, Dr. Lemon at the Oklahoma Institute. And he appears to have been a research psychologist, but also perhaps a clinical psychologist. He appears to have prescribed chimps to troubled people. Oh, if you can't think of a worse idea, but... Um, but many people took chimps into their home as uh, on his advice as their as their therapist um, in, in the 1960s 70s, 70s in the 1970s wow i just got through re-seeing the documentary project, project nim. nim yes and he's that that facility is very implicated in the whole yeah. nim chimsky story as well yeah, for our listeners who haven't seen that documentary, it hit the theaters, what, about two years ago? Yes. Um, the story of a chimp that was adopted into a family in New York. Um, it was a Columbia University psychologist who started this experiment, but he used a chimp that he'd gotten from this Dr. Lemon's facility in Oklahoma. They named the chimp Nim Chimsky after Noam Chomsky, and the idea was to test its language acquisition abilities if raised with humans, signing with humans, right? Yes. And uh, it's a sad story about the chimp getting bounced around. Ending up back in Oklahoma. Ending up back in a cage in Oklahoma, Dr. Lemon's facility again, and then in a, in a medical research facility. And there's a few more steps. Yes. And then at a horse <laughs> ranch. <laughs> um, that movie came out before you released your book. It did come out before what? I released the book. Tell me about the experience of, you probably knew the movie was in the works. You had a, a book in the works. The two have... Enormous parallels and some big differences, of course. Well, um, I, you know, the the documentary comes after uh, a nonfiction book written about it, right? So that was part of my research. I had, I had, I think it it's Nim Chimsky, the chimp who would be human. I think right, is right. the name of the book, <laughs> um, because I had read the book. There was very little in the movie that surprised me. Um, mm. It was, it was material. Mm. Mm. I, again, it was part of my research, and, and it did include material that I had taken in order to create my fictional character. So um, I went and saw the movie, um, which I found pretty devastating, just not as somebody who was writing a chimp book, but just as a, a human being watching how poorly uh, all of the humans in Nim Chimpsky's life failed him um, with the with the exception of one graduate student who um, who rescues him, who rescues him <laughs> from the medical labs, it seems as though the movie's really about how human needs and confusions set this animal's life on a certain crazy, chaotic, you know, sad course. Yes, and and I have to think that if um, 
you know, certainly if a scientist with the rigor of my father looked at that experiment, he would feel the way the experiment was conducted removed any hope of learning anything that, you know, that you could uh, feel any sort of confidence in. Uh, your character, Rosemary, or Rose, in your novel, is quite interested in, in the history of these experiments. And at one point, she sort of lists the fates of these various chimps who were adopted into families, and then usually um, disowned or unadopted, end up in cages somewhere, because as chimps grow, they become less manageable and so on and so forth. They become very dangerous. They're very dangerous animals. Um, And I don't really fault the people in the 70s, because I don't think that was understood. I think most of the people who went into these experiments believed they were making a lifelong commitment, did not imagine that they would be jettisoning the, the chimp at some point, but um, but it. But what it, naivety, huh? But what naivety? Yes. I mean, because it's been well understood are, that chips grow up, right? <laughs> yes, but you know, it was not well understood what they might be like if they grew up in a family as yeah, a family member. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. Well, as I was reading this list of what happened to these chimps, with the Kellogg family chimp and the others, they died prematurely. They ended up somewhere in a cage. And these pseudo-families that were formed were all broken up. And your book is a story of a a broken family, too. Yes. Broken in all kinds of ways. Yes. The consequences for the people are also pretty devastating. When I began to do the research and I began to read uh, about the cross-fostering of chimps, um, of of which there are, are, you know, many books, many accounts, I could find out a lot of information about the experiments. I could find out a lot of information about the chimps. The thing I could find no information about was the impact on the families and particularly on the children, which is what my book was focused on. So in the end, I had to make that up. Um, But since the book has come out, one of the things that I didn't anticipate but that's been pretty amazing is that I I have heard from... um, people who were children in families where uh, chimps came and left. And um, and it appears to have been no easier than I imagined it was. Most of them were pretty troubled by the whole experience. Well, your uh, protagonist, Rose, spends her first, what, five years with a chimp sister named Fern. Yes. At which point the inevitable happens and Fern is removed from the family because of fears, you know. And uh, Rose is left forever after with this feeling of incompleteness, of of a hole in her life. She's got other holes as well. Her brother leaves because of this incident. Did anybody who contacted you or anybody you learned about say that happened to them as well? Well, um, I heard from one person who was born into a family that had had a chimp. The chimp was gone by the time she was born. But she claims the family was destroyed, including her that the um, results of this experiment um, continued for years um, and were devastating, were devastating to everyone involved. And then um, I heard from another woman <clears throat> who, um, whose grandparents apparently fostered a number of chimps for Dr. Lemon to be used in different experiments later. It was, just, it was, it was kind of a foster home until the chimps were needed for some other purpose. But there was one chimp in particular who 
came into her grandparents' family about the time her parents were divorcing and her life was kind of falling apart and her grandparents' home and this chimp in particular were um, her solace. And and um, when her grandmother died, the chimp was removed and her grandfather moved and, you know, so the the whole family unit that she had managed to make for herself when her primary unit fell apart disappeared and yeah she says that um that she has never gotten over it and that it has never been possible to make anybody understand what it felt like to have that to have the chimp removed so abruptly and um from her life that you know that it's it's the tragedy of her life but nobody uh nobody has ever been able to understand that do you think people failed to understand it because they said, oh, that's just a pet, that's just an animal? Yes, I think so. Huh. Or they, you know, they just, they don't imagine that the attachment could be quite that deep, sibling deep. For for Rose, it certainly is. Fern is her sister and yes. always will be. Um, but you don't just dwell on that fact, you know, the sibling relationship. I mean, this becomes a way of looking at all families and all selves, um, all oh, of us. I hope you're right. <laughs> I would not I would not dare to um, claim that I have accomplished that, but that would certainly be well, was that a, my dream. To surely that was on your that. mind. Oh, yeah. absolutely. And there's a um, literary ancestor that sort of hovers over the, the book, um, the great Franz Kafka story. Oh, I thought you were going to say Charlotte's Web. Well, there's the that other too. literary That's ancestor. True. That's true. It's it, of course the name Fern. Yeah, alludes to Charlotte's Web. Charlotte's Web is a story that um, that Rose says was read to them, both she and Fern, when she was young. Yeah, it's but true. yes, the Kafka yeah. much more directly. Well, you quote from the story as an as epigraphs throughout the book, and uh, we should talk about what that story is. It's a very short story. It's called uh, "Report to an Academy." Yes. And it is a, a basically a monologue that Red Peter, who appears to be a captive uh, orangutan, gives um, to possibly to you know some scientific board about um, his experience being captured and and his difficulties in living among humans and his efforts to pass uh, and to be acceptable to humans. Successful to some extent. He's wearing a tuxedo. He's speaking very articulately. He can barely remember his jungle life. His jungle life. He's drinking. He's drinking heavily. <laughs> <laughs> the finest wines with other gentlemen. He's the toast of whatever European city he's, he's in. But there's nostalgia and there's sadness. There's uh, real regret that something is missing. Oh, it's a devastating that, story, I that think. Assimilating you know, and, and, that assimilating this um, way. That assimilating, but there's also, I feel, you know, I, I was going to say clear, but Kafkaian clear is <laughs> not words that you often use together. Um, sense that in order to be passably human, he has had to adopt you know, some of humanity's less attractive mm, qualities. Mm, mm. And I think one of the lines, I don't think you quote this one in the book, but I think it's the, the ending... After talking to the uh, you know scientific establishment about what it took to imitate a human being, how he is a kind of imitation human being, how he 
in becoming human, he had to completely leave behind to the point of not even being able to understand or fully recall what it was like to be his former self. He then says, When I come home late at night from banquets, from scientific receptions, from social gatherings, there sits waiting for me a half-trained little chimpanzee, and I take comfort from her as apes do. By day I cannot bear to see her, for she has the insane look of bewildered, half-broken animal in her eye. No one else sees it, but I do, and I cannot bear it. It's a grim story. <laughs> we've, we've mentioned some of the funnier bits, but it's a pretty grim story. In, in your story, though, Rosemary has something of the half-broken animal in her eye, too. She does. Um, and, but one of Rosemary's, um, and, and perhaps my too, uh, conundrums, is to try to figure out to what extent she is, in fact, just like every other human being, and to what extent she really has been made in, uh, into something quite different, which is how she has been made to feel. But, um, you know, I think that most of the things that she thinks and the things that she says are recognizable to anybody, that, that you yourself may not have been raised with a chimp, and yet, you know, there are certainly bound to be moments in your life where you just think, I don't belong. You're not my kind. I don't belong <laughs> here. Well, she's got an especially um, severe case of that. Yes. Uh, having grown up, not only with a chimp as a sister in her early years, but also having been known publicly for this and having been identified as the monkey girl, right, by other kids. Well, this was one of the surprising things that happened in the original Kellogg experiment, um, which probably should not have been a surprise, but was a surprise, which is that um, when little Donald Kellogg was raised side by side with little Gua he picked up chimp behaviors as quickly as she picked up human behaviors. And it's why the experiment came to quite a sudden end, apparently. At breakfast one morning, little Donald began food hooting because he was pleased with what had been put in front of him. And Mrs. Kellogg said, that's it. That's the end of the experiment. (laughs) It's an excited noise a chimpanzee makes when something delicious is put in front of them. Um, sort of a hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo. So they were genuinely scared about the chimpification of this kid? Yes, his language, <laughs> unlike the the way I imagined it, um, his language was quite delayed, and it appeared to be having severe impacts on him. Um, we know now, or we think we know now, to the extent that we know anything, that human children are much more imitative than, than chimp children, uh, and therefore... Um, it makes perfect sense. Plus, there's a, a kind of mirroring going on in actual brain development. And if you are spending a lot of time with someone, then their brain has an impact on your brain. Mm. Well, Rosemary, you know, after Fern is removed from the scene, becomes deeply ashamed of this whole incident for all kinds of reasons. Uh, partly she blames herself for Fern's, you know, disappearance. She was jealous of Fern. She might have blamed a few things on Fern unfairly, might have led into the decision to get rid of Fern. But she's also ashamed of having these non-human affiliations. And behaviors. And behaviors. And she stamps all that down, represses it. Now, are you saying we all do that with part of ourselves? (laughs) (laughs) 
could I say anything else? (laughs) What kind of case could I possibly make against that? Did you identify with that in any way in your own life? Is there a side of you that you feel like you didn't fully, I don't know. Oh, absolutely. What what side? Um, When we moved from Bloomington, Indiana to Palo Alto, California, I was 11 years old. And in Bloomington, an 11-year-old was still a kid. You know, we played miniature flag at night. I ran around. We played baseball. We skipped rope. Um, we played jacks, uh, four square, all things that I loved, all things I was very good at. Mm. And I came to Palo Alto, and an 11-year-old was a preteen. And at recess, um, we... Um, sat and listened to the radio and talked about cute boys in boy bands and um, stuff that I was not good at and stuff that I was not very interested in. But um, I learned very very much like Rosemary that um, early on, if I opened my mouth, I was likely to say something that someone would find um, peculiar or hilarious or so I just stopped talking. I was much like Rosemary. I was a very chatty child, and I just stopped talking when we moved because I didn't know what could be said and what couldn't be said. Now, that's a kind of extreme example, but you must have some story of your own of that sort. Oh, yeah, many. I, I yeah. don't want to bore my listeners with all of them. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, as an adult, we all um, move from one context to another and we have to alter who we are depending on the context that we're in. I remember, you know, having children and realizing that my job, part of my job as a mother was to be really dull, you know, not to, not to be colorful in ways that would disturb the fragile flower I was trying to nudge toward the sunlight. And and so then, you know, I would go out with my friends where I could be a completely different person, you know, not not a mother of two, but um, the 25-year-old I was when I was a mother of two. You know, there's the, the positive language of self-realization that says you, you take the parts you want to nourish and nurture and you develop those. And then there's the negative view, which is you take, you know, a tarp and throw it over all those parts you don't want visible that aren't acceptable you know that aren't presentable and you create a self by essentially expunging you know parts of your personality your whole personality which side are you on um do i have to pick a side <laughs> i just thought you might be in the latter camp because uh, of what you just said probably a little more in the latter camp yeah. um again though it's it's um it's very contextual so mm. You know, um, in my case, at least, it's not as if the tarp is permanent. It's just, and it it moves, you know, from uh, place to place and setting to setting where I can. um, So I I feel sort of if you put it all together, I'm still a pretty complete human being. And just in each particular case, I'm not a complete human being. Mm. That's what being social means. It means... You know, choosing the right language and behavior for the situation. Right, right. And keeping a, a lid on the rest right. of it. <laughs> uh, there is a great little bit of that uh, Kafka story where he talks about the fact that, um, you know, when he was captured in Africa, he was um, shot 
and he has a bullet wound that he will gladly show to people and hike down his pants to do so. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just like the one, you know, sort of ape-like thing. Yes, he... <laughs> one of his difficulties in passing is his his willingness to drop his trousers. And his lack of shame, body shame, which he sees as a human problem, yes. not his problem. <laughs> um, you're a feminist, yeah? Yes, I am. And, and um, you know, we could talk about all of these these themes as regards, you know, gender uh, roles and all of that. I mean, we could talk about the fact the way that girls, in order to become ladies, are told not to do a lot of things, right? And uh, Rose is, doesn't want to be, I mean, she doesn't say it. She doesn't want to be seen as mannish. That's not the, the issue for her. She doesn't want to be seen as bestial. Yes. You know? But uh, you didn't bring gender into this in a real overt way. You know, you don't call it out that much. No. I think the most direct discussions of it uh, actually involve uh, chimp societies and, you know, the um, mystery in some ways for people as we appear to be genetically equidistant between bonobos and, and common chimps. And the common chimp social structure is very alpha male, um, uh, very male dominated so that... Um, According to what I read, uh, you know, the highest-ranking female is lower than the lowest-ranking male in a in a chimp unit, and then the bonobos are very matriarchal, and there, there's a lot of uh, of um, support from female to female, and um, and they're a lot nicer. They're in a general. lot nicer <laughs> to each other. Yes, they can't be put in zoos, however, because they are constantly having sex with each other and it would, <laughs> it would disturb the children and it's you know it's a great um it's the social glue that you know when someone is Make upset up yeah yeah when someone is upset somebody has to have sex with them to calm them down and um so you know um rosemary is perhaps thinking as i was thinking you know so which are we you know which which describes humans more closely. Um, and I'm afraid I know the answer, but... You know, it's funny. I mean, it, there's so much is left up to to us and our ideology when it comes to picking what model we'd like to say determines our destiny. Yeah. And it all strikes me as, if I can opinionate, somewhat bogus. I mean, we are not chimps. We are not bonobos. And in fact, we we've, not. we've shown the ability to do all those things and and choose. You know, among them. See, this is because your dad was not a behaviorist. <laughs> exactly. You believe this. It's true. My See, dad would say we're not chimps and we're not bonobos, but we are primates. But what does that mean? It means that um, we evidence certain bits of primate thinking, primarily chimp thinking. We, um, we have a, a real us and them kind of tribalism that we're very conscious of hierarchy mm -hmm. um, and and often our our actions come however we are pretending to ourselves they come from a, a wounded sense that we have not been respected the way we've not been given our due place in whatever hierarchy we imagine we have a an innate sense of fairness that mostly expresses itself by feeling that um, 
we did not get our fair share <laughs> and less often <laughs> that we have taken more than our fair share. Um, we are obsessed with each other's sex lives, particularly female um, sexuality. I ha I could do others, but they're not coming to mind. But you know, my father, I think, would say, you know, we um, we put doctrines on these things. We, you know, create whole spiritualities out of these things. We create patriotism out of these things. But it's just primate. It's just basic primate behavior. Mm. I don't think my dad would disagree with that, but he might say biology is not destiny. <laughs> I think my dad might even agree with that. Maybe our maybe our parents could have had dinner together at least. Oh, I'm sure not shared could. a lab. <laughs> and we will get right back to today's conversation with the writer Karen Joy Fowler talking about her most recent novel, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, after some announcements. And uh, before I step away, um, I'm sure there are some alert listeners out there who noticed an apparent contradiction in uh, our description of the Franz Kafka story, Report to an Academy. At one point, Karen said that the ape narrator of the story seems to be an orangutan, and at another point, I said that he was originally captured in Africa, where they don't have orangutans. So what's up with that? Well, I double-checked the story, and uh, indeed, uh, it does say he came from the Gold Coast of Africa, so I don't think he's an orangutan. I suspect he is a chimpanzee. Though Franz Kafka ain't saying. I'll be back right after this. And now back to today's conversation with Karen Joy Fowler, talking about her latest novel, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. It's a story of Rosemary, a girl who, for her first five years, was raised with a chimpanzee as a sister, as part of a psychological experiment not unlike a number of real-life experiments that have been done over the years where human families adopted chimps and attempted to raise them as people. The point of a lot of these um, experiments was to find out whether chimps had real language abilities. Yes. And it's implied, at least, that if they could draw you know, a really hard line between chimp language acquisition and human language acquisition, they could say, here it is. Here is the thing that sets us apart from all the other animals. Yes. I, you know, I've lived long enough to see that effort to find that line of human exceptionalism move many times as we, as we try one thing and then we try another. And certainly in this period, um, language was where people like Noam Chomsky were focused. And I think that um, the results of the cross-fostering experiments in this regard are very unclear to me. I mean, chimps are clearly capable of certain kinds of communication. Um, the extent to which they're capable of grammar and, and more complicated sorts of sentence structures is unclear. Um, but one of the things that struck me doing the research is, um, you know, how how very limited our human idea of what we need to see in order to um, 
acknowledge kinship or intelligence in another species is, you know, it's very myopic. And um, and the idea that if you wanted to see how capable chimps were of communicating, that rather than try to see how if they could be trained to communicate in our language with us, you might instead look and try to see the extent to which they communicate with each other and how that happens and what kinds of complex information they are able to give each other. That idea was so late in coming that that if we're looking at language, um, we should look at their language rather than seeing if they can learn ours. You know, it was just a very late development in all of these studies. That the studies should even start with a goal of distinguishing animals from humans in a in a sort of strict way. I, I wonder, is that really a scientific question at all, or is that sort of a, an emotionally motivated neediness, you know? Why are we obsessed with that? I mean, real science doesn't always start with the assumption of difference and the need to prove it, you know? It doesn't take no. that for granted. <clears throat> no, and, you know, one of the things that... W- was always, and I assume continues to be, anathema in animal studies is anthropomorphizing. But it seems to me that the decision to completely and rigorously refuse to anthropomorphize carries its own assumptions Mm, mm. and, you know, has its own unscientific impacts on the results just the way, in just the way people fear anthropomorphizing does. So just exactly what you said, you know, we can start with an assumption of difference. We can start with an assumption of similarity. We can, we can choose either one. Either one is going to impact our findings. Yeah, and, and I must admit that the simplicity, the simple-mindedness of that question strikes me as not terribly scientific. I mean, is it possible that it's neither? You know, We are not the same as all other species. We are not completely different from all other species. There's a such thing as fuzzy sets and... And gray boundaries, you know. Absolutely. And you would think in a world where Darwin has at least had some impact. <laughs> yeah, there you go. The idea that it's more of a continuum than a, uh, you know, than a, as you said, than clean sets would well, not be such a difficult one to grasp. Well, it makes me wonder if, you know, uh, you're saying that makes me wonder if scientists, though, these scientists would absolutely believe in, in evolution and natural selection. On the other hand, aren't in some unconscious way channeling an old anxiety about us being too close to animals, about us being the descendants of monkeys and all of that, a very anti-Darwinian, you know, yes. worry. Um, Rose has a lot of great quotes, but I, I suspect you might agree with her on this. When humans are the subjects, it's mostly not science. Yes, I do agree with that. It says so much about psychology, even though you and I both are the children of psychologists and I respect the field, I do think it tends to smuggle in a lot of other things, you know? Yes. It's, <laughs> um, you know, part of my father's project was to bring scientific rigor to psychology. And in the end, I think it just can't be done. Yeah, whip it into shape. Yeah. It's funny because on the one hand, you have this imperative in modern science seemingly to distinguish us from animals. You know, here it is. If it's not an absolute difference in the ability to use language or not use language, well, it's certainly in the ability to use complex versus not complex grammatical structures. You know, we're going to find it. We're going to find it. We're going to find it. On the other hand, 
you have a really strong human impulse, and it's manifested in some of the people who adopted these chimps, to erase the boundary, right? In the Nim Chimsky story, that first so-called hippie family that uh, Nim is placed with, the mother breastfeeds him. Yes. Let's him fondle her breasts. Let's him smoke joints. Let's him drink with them. Really, I would say maybe a boundary issue there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we are like that. We're we're schizoid when it comes to animals. Like we either want them to be of our flesh, you know, inseparable from us or utterly distinct so we can occupy the top of the the chain of being, you know. Yes, but you know, look how we're raised. It seems to me that from the moment we're born, um, our kinship with animals is thrust upon us. You know, our rooms are filled yes. with stuffed animals. Our books are filled with animals in suits and ties, having philosophical discussions, um, or, you know, um, behaving in all sorts of ways that we may also be behaving in, you know, finding it hard to go to bed at night. Well, here's a book in which a little bear is having the exact same problem. Um, and then, um, and you know, um, the whole time that we're doing this, we're consuming great quantities of these delightful creatures uh, at every meal. I mean, it's it's just crazy. Our relationship to animals and what it ought to look like and what it does look like, there's just no making sense of it. And I think for children, it must be very tricky. And I think partly also because because this is such a part of childhood that there continues to be then, as you grow up, a sense of... Um, feeling that kind of kinship with animals as a childish thing, as something that you should be able to put away as you grow up and have, you know, have the scientific rigor that my father being an so adult admired, about these being things. Being an adult about these things, <laughs> not being sentimental, not anthropomorphizing. Yes. Um, so, um, yeah, I just think on the, on the subject of how to treat animals, we're completely insane. And then so much of what we do do to animals, we do um, out of sight so that we can pretend we're not or, or at least, at the very least, just not think about it. I don't want to overgeneralize because I have a lot of friends in all branches of the sciences, but there does seem to be sometimes a real distinct difference between the field biologists who go out and spend a good part of their lives among whatever species they're studying. Mostly observing. Mostly observing, yeah. And the lab biologists, for whom the contact with the animals is obviously really, really circumscribed in a special and environment. And very unnatural. Very unnatural, yeah. So you have, you mentioned them, the monkey girls, not just Rose, but also Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey. And who is the... Right, who's the orangutan? orangutan Diane... Um, Starts with a B. It's probably a name I don't know how to pronounce, and therefore, <laughs> but but yeah, you have to you have um, you know a lot of women who have been the real trailblazers in that area. What do you make of that? Uh, you know, the again, it it prompts um, a, a gender issue that's not entirely relevant to the question you just asked, but strikes me as very interesting. So I'm going to start by throwing it out, which is that um, according to my reading, um, the early male 
primatologists who, um, uh, particularly in Japan, who were studying particular species of monkeys in Japan, you know, would would follow a troop for and and make copious notes, um, and could tell all of the males apart, and none of the females. That you know, whatever oh, the oh. females were do was doing was of so little interest to them that it wasn't even part of the study. And so, you know, what you got was a lot of information about how the male monkeys behaved. And Was it um, mostly about power relationships? I don't know. You know, whatever mm. the female monkeys' lives entailed was just not interesting. Mm. Uh, so much so that um, it was just left out, left out of the record. But I, I did read, have read, that... Um, Particularly in chimp societies, and I think in gorillas as well, um, and I think it must be true in orangutans that um, you know the presence of a male observer has an effect that a female observer does not, even humans. So that really, it just the the monkeys, the chimps, the apes respond better, go about their lives more easily when the person watching them is female. So if I were ever to become a primatologist, I'd better do it in drag? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I guess you just have to <laughs> learn to be very self-effacing. I don't know. That, um, there certainly have been great male primatologists as well. But the, the names we all think of first are all women. You know... In the acknowledgments in the back of the book, uh, where you thank people who've contributed to it, you uh, mention Tatu, Dar, Lewis, and also the human animals at the Chimpanzee and Human Communication Institute in Ellensburg, Washington. Tell me about that place and what you did there. I was, you know, um, when I decided that I would write this book, uh, when my daughter gave me the idea, um, I thought I would have to know about two things. I thought I would have to know about psychologists, and I thought I would have to know about chimps. And I felt pretty comfortable that I knew about psychologists, but I knew very little about chimps. And so I did, you know, I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of book learning. But I thought that I really needed to be in the presence of chimps, and I needed to see what I could see. And that took me to some zoos, um, but also to this uh, this facility in Ellensburg, Washington. When when you talked about the part of the book where I talk about what happens to the chimps, um, the one chimp whose story is a relatively happy one is Washoe, um, the most famous of the signing chimps. And the facility in Ellensburg was built for Washoe to be a place where Washoe could live a happy life and um, be among people as she was used to being and among chimps as she had become used to being. Um, she was never outplaced into a family. She Never had that misfortune? She was raised, I believe, um, uh, when she was an infant. I think she was home-raised by a mm. family, but mm. th that ended fairly soon. And um, And she also spent some unhappy years in the Oklahoma facility of Dr. Lemon. Um, but the graduate student who was assigned to her, Roger Fouts, um, appears to me just to really have made it his lifelong mission to make sure that she was happy um, to the extent that he could manage that. And so this facility um, in Ellensburg used to provide 
for a fee that went into the upkeep of the facility, something they called a chimposium. And you could go and uh, pay for a day, and you would spend time with the chimps, always with a bulletproof glass wall between you and them. But uh, aside from that, places where you could watch them and communicate with them. Um, and then th this would be alternated with lectures from people who had worked with the chimps. And so I went up and did that, and I just learned an enormous amount from doing that. And it was a wonderful facility. Washoe had died a year or two before I went up. And last year, Dar died. So the facility was down to two chimps, which they felt it was not sufficient. And so the symposiums have been ended and the mm. chimps have been relocated to a, a sanctuary. Um, so you cannot go take a symposium now, which is a shame because it was really a wonderful thing to do. Mm. Did you find yourself wishing that bulletproof glass weren't there or didn't have to be there? Of course I wish, you know. I wish I could lie down among lions and be accepted as one of the of the tribe. I wish I could swim with the dolphins. Um, I think, again, you know, in that um, peculiarly insane and contradictory feeling we have towards animals, we both wish to be accepted by them, seen as good humans, you know, not the sort who will cause them trouble, but the sort who will be friends with them and take thorns from their paws. And um, so we, you know, simultaneously wish for birds to light on our fingers and and also wish to believe that we are exceptional in some way that they are not and really um, that eating them is no big crime. Do you eat them? I do. I try to eat as few as possible. I'm very careful about sourcing. I eat mostly fish, but I'm sure the more I learn about fish, the more that will not seem like a reasonable. I I hope that I am moving towards vegetarianism, but I am definitely a work in progress. I am not there yet. But you don't eat chimp. I do not eat chimp. Well, Rosemary, um, the narrator, by the way, and protagonist of your book, um, we are all completely beside ourselves. Her task in the book is to figure her own self out and to do so by telling the story. Yes. Which is not easy. Yes, especially because it's um, it's a story that she has carefully not only not told before, but done her best not to think about before. So a lot of it comes back to her kind of in pieces as the book goes on and um, some of it surprising to her because it's she's been so careful not to think about these things and difficult too because two of the most essential aspects of her storytelling language and memory are both unreliable very unreliable yes one of the things that um i'm trying to avoid saying the least plausible part of my book but i guess <laughs> there's really no other way to say it is that the experiment could have gone on for five years Mm. Um, a number of the experiments did go on for five years or more, but not when there were small children in the family. And so um, I hoped I could get away with that, mostly because I needed it. I needed Rosemary to have some memories 
of this period in her life. But um, she's 40 when she's telling the story, and she's thinking back on events that happened when she was three and four and five. So, yes, um, her memory is very unreliable and very spotty. And and in the places where it's um, most uh, vivid and most, you know, well-lit, that that itself is cause for suspicion. Mm-hmm. That she's done some rewriting of things unintentionally. Well, she what she's hoping for, it seems, is to restore some original like wholeness, some idea of a whole family, of a whole self, of a whole sibling relationship. Yes, but I think she also feels a a great. Um, obligation to speak on behalf of her brother and her sister neither of whom are speaking so yeah um she she feels the family story rests with her and um i think it's mostly uh i mean i'm sh- i i think th- that definitely trying to return to herself some sort of wholeness is there but i think her her conscious motivations are to defend her brother and her sister. Ah, uh-huh. Um, in the course of which she's also looking for her true self. Yes. Is that something you think storytelling can provide? It certainly provides the illusion of it, at least, to the person telling the story. I have had on probably more than one occasion and less than five um, I have had an experience where I have been teaching uh, a creative writing workshop and had somebody in it tell me, you know, a, f- a few days in that they f- feel like they're real, their true selves for the first time in their lives as they grapple with the story they're trying to tell. That, you know, this is somehow this act of creativity and the way it involves your memory and your imagination and um, your values, um, somehow bringing all of that to bear in the effort to try to make your story meaningful and beautiful um, for a number of people feels like you're finally expressing who you really are. And this is usually said to me with great unhappiness because they're about to leave the workshop and go back home where they have to be, as we were talking about earlier, some more truncated self in order to deal with their work situation or their family situation. That you know that they've had this one moment where um, where they felt all parts were acceptable, and they will go home, and that will no longer be the case. Wow! And how does that make you feel as a leader of? These experiences. <laughs> I, you know, um, think that a a really good creative writing teacher would also probably be a trained counselor, which <laughs> I am not. But um, but I do I do love you know helping people um, tell the story they want to tell because often um, you know when and I I speak about myself as much as any other writer that I've worked with. Often you don't really know the story you're trying to tell for a, a long time. You're working on it and working on it. And um, and the sort of the day when you start to figure out, oh, this is 
the part that's actually important to me. This is the part that I actually want to say is a huge celebratory jump forward. Hmm. Hmm. There's a moment when Rose in the novel, who's been really casting about for some sense of centeredness. There's one point where she says, I know myself. I know exactly what you're talking about. Right. She has been afraid that she told a lie. Right. Uh, you know, long ago in a in a period that she cannot really reliably remember. And, and she decides in the end that she did not tell the lie because she has a sense, finally, of who she really is. And she thinks that person would not have told that lie. Now, but isn't that a fascinatingly roundabout way of deciding that you couldn't have told a lie? <laughs> that, that the, the, the ex- Do you find it suspicious? Um, <laughs> I just find it fascinating that the externalized character that you now recognize and have some sense of their motives and their and what they would do and wouldn't do is then used to validate some memory of your own. And that brings me to the title of your novel. <laughs> we are all completely beside ourselves. Tell me this. How long have you, and I'm just going to hazard a guess here, been in love with that expression? Most of my life. You know, it's one of those expressions that um, I, I can't even tell you where I first heard it or how often I've heard it. Or, but it's it's one of those expressions that, you know, I used for a while without really stopping to think about how peculiar uh, an expression it actually is. And there are many, many expressions like that where you suddenly think about the literal meaning and think, you know, where in the world did that come from? How... How does how has that come to be something that we say? Um, so you know, initially, my um, encounters with it, it always meant, well, we are overexcited or we are overagitated or something. You know, we are beside ourselves with excitement or worry. Or we've lost our composure. We've lost our composure. Yeah. Um, but I wanted it to have, uh, obviously, in the book, um, I think a, a great title means something when you pick the book up and means something different when you put the book down. And I hoped that this title would accomplish some of those things so that I did, in the end, want it to have a literal meaning that um, that we are part of the world um, for two reasons. One, the one we've sort of talked about, that we are an animal among other animals and that um, the difference between us and the creatures we share the world with is not as great as um, we would like to think it is but also in that way that um, uh, that is is close to the quote you used from um, Rosemary that when humans are studying humans it's not science um Partly that's because um, when humans study anything, um, they're studying humans. That, you know that, that that the only way that we have to function in the world is through our bodies and our senses. And so everything that comes to us comes filtered through our being humans, and and is transformed by that filter into something human, um, e- even if. Even if our impulse is to draw that line and say this is human and this isn't human, that's still 
we're still studying humans. We're still trying to figure out what it means to be human. So, um, so in the, both those ways, the, uh, we are completely beside ourselves that when we go out in the world, um, everything we see is us. Mm. And yet it suggests that we're not completely integrated. We're beside ourselves and sort of outside ourselves. Yes. I wonder if I can even say this or if it's so abstract in my mind that it will slip the bounds of language. But beside ourselves in that way, that unintegrated way, suggests a self that is not part of the world. Uh, you know, So in that very phrase and in focusing on the word beside, um, be- beside ourselves, um, there's an assumption that there's a self there that is separate from the world. Yeah. And if instead the ourselves encompasses the world, then, you know, e- everything we see, everything we are beside is ourselves. That just made no <laughs> sense at all. In my head, it made perfect sense. Mm, and yet the, when the, it came out of my mouth, I, I, it just sounded so Californian. I've got to say that the, the, the title made total sense to me as I read the book. Um, and, and in part because that act of constructing the self, of of creating a self on the page or in one's words, in the process of describing one's biography, is to put it there outside of us, beside us for contemplation. Yes. You know, and that we are all doing that all the time. Yes. You know? Yes. And that there's something in the in the mere act of observing ourselves and trying to understand ourselves that creates that split. So was this a title waiting for a story? For all these years, no, you know, m- many people have asked me about the title because um, it's obviously unusual and catches people's eye. Um, and I know that I wrote most of the book without a title, and I cannot remember. Wow! When I decided on this title, I do remember thinking that I loved it, um, and that I knew that my editor was there was no way. That my publishing house was going to allow me to have this title. <laughs> oh, no. Really? But they didn't say a word about it. So that slipped through more easily. But what's wrong with it? I mean, what would, who could possibly object to it? I was told that we're in a period of one-word titles. Mm. It's very lengthy. Mm. It's, it's actually hard to remember all of it so that when you go into a bookstore... And if you, if the bookseller doesn't know the book you're talking about and is typing it in, it may not come up because you've left out the word all or you've left out the word completely. But I had this, strangely, I had this problem with the Jane Austen Book Club because so many people do not spell Austin with an E. That I spell it like the city in Texas. They spell it like the city in Texas. <laughs> So that I would go into a place where I had been told to go and sign books, and they would look on the computer and they would say, well, we don't have your books here. And I would have to say, how are you spelling Austin? <laughs> oh. Well, we won't get it wrong on this show. The name of the book is We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. Karen, I've been beside myself with pleasure oh, during thank this you. interview. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> Hey folks, Robert Polly here, and uh, though that may have sounded like the very end of my conversation with Karen Joy Fowler, it wasn't. Um, after that little close there, uh, I turned around and asked her if there was anything important that we left out, and she had this to say. So this is about my father again, um, which is that I 
have um, been surprised at some of the reviews who see the father as a really villainous figure um, because um, I did not see him that way. I saw him, uh, I saw the whole family as very well-intentioned. And uh, Well, he's he's wounded. He's very wounded, yes. And he does have a little whiff of the patriarchal. Well, he does. You know, about him. He's not. He's no more adorable than... There's a reference to Mosquito Coast in here. Where yes. A, where a autocratic father takes his family on a great adventure of his own, you know, selfish devising, you know? Yes. So there's an allusion to the fact that, you know, fatherly hubris is at work. Yes. But, but he's a tragic figure, But too. he's a tragic figure, I hope. Yeah. I hope he doesn't come across as villainously as apparently he does to some people. Didn't to me. Good enough. (laughs) You've been listening to the 7th Avenue Project. We'll be back on the air next week, and we are online all the time at 7thAvenueProject.com.